0: Just what you've been waiting for Movies, TV, music and more Follow, subscribe, stay up to date The episode's dropping on Monday's It's the man, is the man, watch that is the man, is the man, watch that is the man, is the man, watch that Oh. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Swarovski, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Swarovski. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, it's time for our favorite segment, Box Office Breakdown. I'm going to look at the domestic box office for August 1995 and give you my thoughts on the movies. Special thanks to BoxOfficeMojo.com for the information. Now the rankings are based on the total gross in the month of August. So there can be movies new to the month of August or carried over from previous months. Coming in at number 10, Clueless with $22 million and a total gross of $56 million. I just rewatched this movie recently. The comedy definitely holds up. Obviously it's a little dated, but I still think it's a legitimately funny movie. Number 9 is Virtuosity with $24 million. Not one of Denzel's biggest movies, but it has like a cult classic feel to me. Number 8, Apollo 13, with $31 million. It would gross $172 million in August alone. I remember really enjoying that movie, but I've only seen it once. And the only thing I remember about the movie is one of the characters threw up, but because they were in space, it was like floating chunks. And the only reason that image stands out for me is because I just really hate throwing up. So to do it in space and zero gravity sounds even more horrific. Number seven is A Walk in the Clouds with $33 million. I don't think I've ever seen it. Number six, The Net with $34 million. I really like this movie a lot. And if you rewatch it now, it's scary how much that they predicted in that movie. First off, Sandra Bullock, working from home, does everything online from ordering pizzas, plane tickets, you name it. She's never met her co-workers. No one can identify her because she never leaves the house. It's like the filmmakers were peering into 2020 and 2021 and going, yeah, that could be such a scary existence. Number five is Babe with 39000000 million. I've never seen this movie because I hated the trailers with that stupid pig going, la 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 la. I just couldn't do it. Sorry, babe. The only time I want to see a pig like you is on my breakfast plate. Number four, Something to Talk About with $42 million. Never seen it, but I love the Bonnie Raitt tune. I wonder when that trend started, naming movies after the title of a song. It definitely happened a lot in the 80s, and I think in the 2010s there was like Take Me Home Tonight. Another great tune, by the way. But I wonder what the first song was that studio execs said, we're going to name a movie after this popular song. Number three is Mortal Kombat with $46 million. It would go on to grow $70 million in August. For some reason, I always get the impression that that movie was a box office bomb, but those are some really strong numbers, especially for a movie based on a video game. And it did go on to spawn a couple more sequels, including the recent remake. So there's definitely legs in the franchise. Number two is Dangerous Minds with 50 million. Another one of those uptight teachers goes into a quote-unquote troubled neighborhood and turns around the lives of the kids there. They teach her how to loosen up, she teaches them that it's possible to reach their goals, and everyone's happy in the end. Has one of the greatest rap songs ever, Gangsta's Paradise, and one of the greatest parodies ever, Amish Paradise. And at number one, Waterworld, with $59 million. It would go on to gross $88 million in August. It's really not a bad movie, and it's only considered a bomb because it had like a $300 million budget. But it's funny that the stunt show at Universal Studios has outlasted the legacy of the movie that it's based on. And that's it for the box office breakdown. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It, two stars Watch at Your Own Risk, three stars Standard Fair, four stars Worth Checking Out, and five stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie, Bonnie and Clyde from 1967. The titular characters are portrayed by Warren Beatty, known for Shampoo, Heaven Can Wait, and one of my favorites, Dick Tracy. He won an Academy Award for Best Director of Reds. And, of course, Faye Dunaway, who starred in Chinatown, Mommy Dearest, Three Days of the Condor, and won an Oscar for Best Actress in a Leading Role for Network. It was directed by Arthur Penn, who helmed The Chase, The Missouri Breaks, Target, and was nominated for Best Director for Alice's Restaurant, The Miracle Worker, and this feature. The screenplay was co-written by David Newman and Robert Benton, who scribed What's Up Doc, Bad Company, and Superman. They were nominated for Best Writing, Story, and Screenplay, written directly for the screen for this feature. Robert Benton would go on to write and direct Kramer vs. Kramer. Here's a quote without context. We got $1.98 and you're laughing. The movie starts off with the introduction of Bonnie, who seems bored with her ordinary life. She looks out the window and spots Clyde scoping out her mother's car. She immediately gets intrigued with the handsome stranger. They walk into town for a Coke and get to know each other. He confesses that he's been in prison for armed robbery, but when she doesn't believe him, he takes out his pistol. Not a euphemism. Even though she's impressed with his Smith & Wesson, she can't imagine that he'd ever use it. To prove her wrong, he goes into a grocery store and robs it. The pair speed off in a car, and when they eventually pull over, Bonnie gets a little frisky with Clyde, but he ends up stopping her. I think it's because he gets more of a thrill from robbing banks over sex. I get that way from moist chocolate cake. While they're refueling at a gas station, they meet an attendant named C.W. Moss, played by Michael J. Pollard, who appeared in Scrooge, Tango, and Cash, and Roxanne! You don't have to put on the red line. Um, he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for, you guessed it, this movie. They bring him along on their bank-robbing adventures, and during one heist, he parks the car which inhibits them from a quick getaway. Clyde ends up killing the manager. Taking a page out of the Lee Harvey Oswald playbook, they take shelter in a movie theater until the coast is clear before heading to their hideout. Clyde meets up with his older brother, Buck, an outgoing life-of-the-party type, who visits with his wife, Blanche, who's not. The couple is performed by Gene Hackman, one of the greatest, from The French Connection, The Conversation, Unforgiven, and Superman, two-time Academy Award winner, and Estelle Parsons from Dick Tracy, Watermelon Man, Rachel Rachel, Roseanne, and won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for Bonnie and Clyde. So Buck asks him if the murder was in self-defense, and he says there was no other choice. Clyde asks him if it's true that when he broke out of jail, Blanche convinced him to go back. They agree not to tell their significant others about their foibles. Clyde suggests that they drive up to Missouri, where law enforcement isn't looking for them, find a place where they can hole up for a while, and have a nice vacation. Now, if the movie were to end there, it sounds like a fun little romp. You know, if you don't count the murders. But if you know anything about American history, things don't turn out well for Bonnie and Clyde. This is an excellent film. The acting is top-notch. How can it not be with this cast? There are moments where it does feel over-the-top, but if you take it in the context of the period within the movie, and when it was actually made, it's fairly reflective of those times. I really liked the movie and it's a masterclass in filmmaking, but I wasn't in love with it. Would I watch it again? Maybe, for the performances and the scenery. I understand that as a movie, it was way ahead of its time in terms of sex and violence, compared to other studio outputs. Obviously, it's tame by today's standards, but that doesn't take away from how groundbreaking it was. The ending was pretty abrupt and intense, I dare say overkill. This is something to look out for. In Gibsland, Louisiana, there is a marker commemorating their death. You can look it up on Google Maps. The cinematography was captured by Burnett Guffey, whose filmography includes All the President's Men, Gidget, In a Lonely Place, and won an Academy Award for Best Cinematography of From Here to Eternity and This Feature. Beautifully shot. It was filmed in and around Texas and uses the landscapes well. It was edited by Dee Dee Allen, who worked on The Breakfast Club, The Hustler, Alice's Restaurant, and was nominated for three Academy Awards for Best Film Editing for Wonder Boys, Reds, and Dog Day Afternoon. She started her career as a messenger at Columbia Pictures and worked her way up to film editor. One of my favorite parts was when she intercut between car chases and interviews with robbery victims. It didn't slow the pace down and added a bit of dimension because you were hearing how their actions affected those people. The score was composed by Charles Strauss, who wrote the music for The Night They Rated Minsky's, and Annie. He also wrote the songs for the animated movie All Dogs Go to Heaven. Known for his work in the theater, he composed the Broadway musical Bye Bye Birdie, which included the pop standard Put on a Happy Face. His most famous composition was probably Those Were the Days, which was used as the theme song for one of the greatest sitcoms, All in the Family. The music is what you'd expect from a Great Depression era movie. Lots of steel guitars, banjos, and fiddles. I swear I heard a musical jug as well. It all complements the film. I wouldn't say I was humming any of the tunes afterwards, and there weren't any earworms like It's a Hard Knock Life, which I'm thankful for. The runtime is 1 hour 51 minutes. It had a budget of 2.5 million and grossed 70 million at the box office. Now for a little trivial trivia. It was the second highest grossing film for Warner Bros. behind Only My Fair Lady. Wonder where it lies now with all the DC movies. Alphonse! Alphonse! Look that up for me. It was nominated for 10 Oscars at the 1968 Academy Awards, winning two. Ultimately, the movie comes down to... Gumption, Stud Service, Peach Pie, 4-cylinder Ford Coupe, Kodak, No Trouble Now, Texas Ranger, That's My Car... And Crossfire. I give it an easy 4 out of 5 stars. If you've seen Bonnie and Clyde and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be a movie trailer, music video, interview, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called Matt watch that Playback. I think we all have that band that we've heard of and we absolutely love, yet no one else knows about them. For me, that band is The Pierces. It's comprised of two sisters, Allison and Catherine. They write their own music. They play their own instruments. They have amazing harmonies. They are true talents. But when it seems like they're about to break through, they just can't get to that next level for whatever reason. And it's absolutely astounding. They released two albums independently, and they didn't really make too much of a mark, but it was their third album, 13 Tales of Love and Revenge, that started to gain some traction. A couple of songs appeared in CW shows, but it was their single, Secret, that became the theme song for Pretty Little Liars. It's one of the reasons why I boycotted watching Pretty Little Liars for a long time. My friend Paul and I, we had created this show, and it's really about someone who's living a double life, And I did a search for songs about secrets or whatever, and this song came up. And I listened to it, I'm like, this is perfect. The vibe is great, the lyrics are strong. I couldn't wait to tell him. I found our theme song. And then I read that Pretty Little Liars got there first. So I was a little bitter. That album was probably their most diverse. They had a lot of different styles, some quirky instrumentation. It's one of my favorites. They released two more albums afterwards that were a little more thematic and focus. You and I had a very 60s, 70s feel, Mama and the Papas vibe. Like it felt vintage, but there was something modern about this. It wasn't one of those bands that just strictly sticks to 60s. A new take on past music. Then their latest album to date, Creation, had a very 80s feel. Lots of synthesizers, but it still felt new and fresh. They took a break for a couple of years and both released some singles, solely, 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 as a solo artist. But they've since come back together, released some Christmas songs, and hopefully a new album in the future. I'm a huge fan. I can't help sing their praises. As of this moment, I have no idea what songs I'm going to feature on the playlist because as soon as I'm like, yep, those are the songs that best capture who they are, then I say to myself, well, what about that song? Oh crap, that's a good song too. So if you have the time, Sticks and Stones, Ruin, Three Wishes, Lies, You'll Be Mine, We Are Stars, Kissing You Goodbye, Space and Time, Creation, I Can Feel, Monsters. I'm telling you, they're amazing. They should be far more famous than they are. And whatever tracks I pick, they're going to be on the Matt Watch That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Parenthood, created by Jason Caddams, Primetime Emmy Award winner who worked on Friday Night Lights, Roswell, Boston Public, and Rise. It revolved around the Braverman clan, headed by parents Camille and Zeke, played by Bonnie Bedelia and Craig T. Nelson. They have four children, Adam, Sarah, Crosby, and Julia, portrayed by Peter Krause, Lauren Graham, Dax Shepard, and Erica Christensen, who have families of their own. Those children are acted by Sarah Ramos, Max Burkholder, Miles Heiser, Mae Whitman, Savannah Page Ray, and Tyree Brown. Sholo Duenya from Cobra Kai was introduced in Season 3. What an incredibly talented cast. It's such a joy watching them together on screen. They seemed really close-knit. It's pretty amazing that the writers were able to balance the storylines where all the characters are represented adequately. There was so much drama on this show that if you didn't cry at least once an episode, I would question if you were alive. But that's not to say it wasn't fun and lighthearted either. One of the most enjoyable shows I've ever watched. Sure, there were a couple of characters that could get on your nerves, but that's what's called having a family. It was never a big ratings grabber, which is a shame because with the popularity of This Is Us and A Million Little Things, it could fit right in with that demographic. I wouldn't be surprised if those shows were inspired by it. In the final season, they reduced the number of episodes and only certain actors would appear, which was probably a cost-cutting measure. There was one storyline with the Graham family that was unpopular with fans of the show. It seemed like they were digging at the bottom of the barrel for a storyline, and they just didn't execute it well because the characters were doing things that were out of character, but just fast forward through those scenes. I'm proud to say that the Braverman clan had a satisfactory send-off in the season finale, and the door was left open for a potential reunion, which I'm sure many of us want to see parenthood was on for six seasons 103 episodes from 2010 to 2015 that's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I plan on having interactive elements, so follow, subscribe, and like for all the latest news, updates, and polls. Until next time, and now you know. And one best actress in a leading acting role thingy. And we've got a car outside. <laughs> lots, of synthes- lots of synthesizers. Lots of synthesizers. Lots of synth. Jesus.